talk smack and drink bourbon. One of the ways around that is the neighbor questions. He'd say, all right, I understand you're for Hillary. Uh, how do you think most of your neighbors are there? And that lets them tell you what they really think. All right, we are back at Bourbon in the Back Room. It's been a while, listeners. We've had some great interviews recently with people like former Governor Dick Riley, one of the, the best interviews we've probably ever had. But we're closing on Christmas, and we wanted to focus a little and bit. And Hanukkah. And Hanukkah. Thank you. And yeah. the holidays. And uh, thank you, Joel. Yeah, got to um, remind you. We wanted to focus on some guests who maybe could talk a little bit more about behind-the-scenes politics. But before we get there, Joel, tell us what's going on in South Carolina government and politics. So, Vincent, as we sit here on Thursday December the 8th, the House just had their reorganizational session. And and for our listeners, what that means is, as you know, the House goes through a cycle, a two-year cycle. They just had elections. Just had elections. And and the Republicans have a, what I guess is now a supermajority. The most Democrats lost since the House changed in 1994. I think six Democrats lost in the state house. So, yeah. And so, you know, they they pretty much have a two-thirds majority now. And they come in and elect new officers. Uh, Merle Smith, who we've had on the show, we'll have to get him back. Yeah, Merle's the new Speaker of the House from new Sumter Speaker County. That, great guy. Um, I think I think we all um, feel like Merle's going to lead with a real steady and balanced hand. But we also have some new committee chairs, Vince. I want you to walk our listeners through who those new people are. <clears throat> right, so there are two, remember, listeners, two really powerful committees in the State House of representatives. One is uh, arguably the most powerful committee, and that's the Ways and Means. It writes the budget for the state every year. It spends over $10 billion of, of taxpayer dollars. It decides uh, primarily how much teachers are going to get paid, things like that. Representative Merle Smith was the House Ways and Means chairman. He is now the Speaker of the House. The new chairman will be Bruce Bannister uh, from Greenville. And Joel, what's interesting is this is really the first time we've seen the upstate uh, gain power really in a in a in a position like the Greenville at least, which traditionally had held many powerful posts um, since David Wilkins, I believe. But really, what's happened is there've been a tremendous churn in Greenville of senators of House members. They don't hold terms for very long. Bruce has has been there now for well over a decade and is seen as a real leader in the state house, and he'll be the Chairman of Ways and Means. So good luck, Bruce. I think you'll do a great job. Yeah, so you got Bruce Bannister, um, Ways and Means. And then Judiciary is the other really powerful committee uh, in the House. And uh, Weston Newton from down the low country, a lawyer from down there, also a wonderful guy, very pragmatic and thoughtful, is going to be the chairman of Judiciary. So a lot of changes in the State House. I think the Education Committee. Joel, which, of course, is also important. Shannon uh, Erickson from Buford. And, and that's going to be interesting because you've got Shannon, you've got the new superintendent of education. Yeah, Ellen, Ellen Weaver. Weaver. Yeah, you know, a I lot of changes. Both pretty strong on this school voucher issue. Right. private school. Here's one, Vincent, that, that we didn't talk about during the break. But for the first time ever, the House 3M committee is now being um, chaired by a Republican. Wow. So tell our listeners wow. how, what I mean by, wow. by that's big news. So in 1994, when the Republicans took over the state for the first time uh, in the history of South Carolina, um, one committee was kind of uh, singled out as the committee that would have a majority of Democrats, and that was the 3M committee, which is military, municipal, municipal and medical. Medical. And just the fact that I couldn't remember the name of the acronym <laughs> tells you that not a lot happens there. But anyway, it was— They would never send us the good bills. <laughs> that was the Democratic committee, and there was traditionally a chairman who was a Democrat, and there was a majority who were Democrats. Uh, but I guess there's so few Democrats now that they, you can't even have a yep, committee so, with a majority so old, on it. old pal Leon Howard, who's been chairing that committee for the yeah. last 10 or so years— 
um, since Representative Joe Brown, who chaired right. that committee. I love Joe Brown, was a Most dear friend of people. my dad's and yeah. mine. Then Representative Leon Howard became the chairman. But I think because you have less than a third Democrats or roughly about a third um Representative Howard now has taken on a new seat on the Ways and Means Committee, and Representative Celeste Davis from the Low Country is the lone Low Country area legislator now to chair a committee. So, Joe, one of the interesting things that's happened because of the real Republican domination of the state is is what's going on here in Richland County, which is it's so Democratic um, that you don't have any uh, elected officials in the state house who are Republicans, right, in Richland County anymore. Because you have the loss of uh, that's right, Kirkman, Kirkman Finley, Finley loss. So, you, so is it right. is it is it a problem for Richland County the the Republican dominance, or are you able to navigate it and, and still have some? Well, some, it's not nearly the problem it is for Kershaw County. <laughs> we, have a, we have House members and senators who are right? actually capable. Um, you know, yeah. I, I think you've got to look go deeper. I mean, you've got people like Daryl Jackson who've right. been on Finance Committee right. who who works well on both sides in the House. You've got the Beth minority Bernstein. leader, Todd Rutherford. You've yeah. got Beth Bernstein. So the answer is, because of the way Republicans and Democrats still work in the state, a, a county like Richland can still have an impact. Yeah, but don't get me wrong. It would help to have a um, stronger representation, have a committee chairman. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're, we're still probably the most Democratic county in the state. Certainly one, one of them. them. So, yeah. Vincent, we have got a cool guest got a today. Great guest. Yeah, I'm yeah. really excited. A little bit different than what we've done in the past. But our people are going to love it. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back and introduce our guests. Joel, I'm really excited to hear that we have another new sponsor of Bourbon in the Back Room. Tell our audience who it is. So, Vincent, let me tell you and all of our listeners about South Carolina's only locally-based health insurance company, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, one of our sponsors of Bourbon in the Back Room. They've got all your health insurance needs covered through all stages of life. Whether it's individual and family coverage, group coverage, or Medicare, you can count on Blue Cross for quality health insurance close to home. In fact, South Carolinians have counted on Blue Cross. You ready for this, Vincent? For 75 years. Wow. So if you need health insurance, let Blue Cross take care of you, your family, or your employee. Welcome, Blue Cross Blue Shield to Bourbon in the Back Room. All right. We'll be right back. Vincent, it's a pleasure to introduce our guest today, and I've been wanting to get him on the show for quite some time, and he's been nice enough now that things are slowing down to spend some time on South Carolina's most favorite political podcast. This guy actually grew up in Pendleton, South Carolina, and a lot of people wouldn't know him, but he is quite a player on the national scene. He's the president and founder of Trafalgar Group, which is uh, probably one of the most prominent polling institutions in America today. And we have the one and only, you may have seen him on TV or read about him in the newspaper, Robert Cahaley. Robert, welcome to Bourbon in the Back Room. Hey, it's awesome to be here. And uh, I'm just proud to be a small part of the biggest, most prominent political podcast in South Carolina. <laughs> you know how to do it. Well, if, you're looking, you're if you're looking to grow your popularity and you want to sponsor us, we'll give you quite a deal, buddy. <laughs> Robert, let our, let our listeners know a little bit about you personally. You know, we knew, we know you're from South Carolina, um, but just where you grew up, you know, what you're doing now in South Carolina or your ties to South Carolina and, and how you got into this business. Yeah, um, my family's uh, been from South Carolina. My father's family is from Greenville. And uh, I, though I, I was born in um, 
Albany, Georgia. They moved back to South Carolina pretty quickly thereafter. And I grew up in Anderson County and in uh, Pendleton, South Carolina, and uh, went all the way, you know, through school there. And uh, as close as Pendleton is to Clemson, um, y'all know where very well. I'm a Gamecock and had to put up yeah, a lot I of grief for that. I did the same thing. I was in Camden, too close to USC, so I went to Clemson. <laughs> exactly. So uh, I, you know, I've spent, uh, you know, South Carolina's very formative. I mean, it's just everything I've ever done from the beginning of politics and when I was a kid going door to door for county council races. In the Democrat primary, I'll have you know. That was a long time ago, man. But yeah, I started doing it uh, back then and uh, you know, got involved and uh, through high school and college and doing campaigns. And, and I was an intern for uh, Senator Thurman uh, when he was in the, the Senate. Okay. I worked on pretty much every legislative cycle in South Carolina since 1990 I've been involved in. And uh, so I know a good bit of the history and, uh, and, you know, just doing this type of work uh, ever since. So Uh, so we, yeah. Robert, you worked in kind of the political, the political, I'll call it the political side of it. But I mean by that, you just talked about door knocking and helping with campaigns and that kind of thing. But eventually you really began to focus on the polling side of it. Explain to our listeners how that came about. I mean, you were just interested in politics, right? That's originally why you were, as a young person. Oh, listen, he was part of the Gazay machine in Richland County. He was by that. That's how I got to know him is, is, you know, I was very close to Senator Gazay and my former solicitor, Barney Gazay. In fact, I had the great honor to to succeed Senator Gazay. But Robert was all involved in those campaigns. I mean, I'm talking about somebody that has worked his way up, right? you know, from going door to door to being, you know, a paid consultant to now running this national polling group. Kind of talk to us about, before we get into polling, Vince, let's talk about some of the most memorable moments in your South Carolina political campaigns, Robert, because you've been involved in dozens. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just so so many of the major races. I mean, you're right. I went from you know, kind of a college and high school volunteer. And, and actually, while I was in college, was my first uh, real professional gig. I was working for Jim Miles, Secretary of State. That was the competitive race back in 1990. And you probably were one of those guys that put up those damn green signs in <laughs> all 46 counties. Am I right? I, you know, I wish I could take credit for that, but his son, Mel Miles, is the one who handled that. Okay. And uh, Jim had a great philosophy. They're, they're, you know, those four by eight signs are filled up the back of a, a like a, what do you, I guess, suburban. And the uh, boys weren't allowed to get a hotel room. They had to sleep on top of the sign. So the first <laughs> day, they had to put enough signs so there was room to sleep in the back <laughs> of the truck. <laughs> so they were all over the state putting those up. And, you know, I, and so I've done everything from that to uh, my first real big uh, chance was working with uh, uh, David Beasley in his first race oh, wow. uh, for, for governor. So, I mean, that was that was a you know, paid staff role. And I, I, I did that. And went that on was to 1994. A, is that right? Yeah, that would have been, was started in 93, actually. Yeah. Uh, and Beasley and then that, that was the primary. Some of these years the primary got moved. Uh, when August, you might recall. Who's in that primary, guys? Uh, I'll bet Ravenel Hartnett. Uh, I believe Ravenel Hartnett. I want to say it might be a third person. Yeah, first it was a really close general election race. I think um, David Extremely won. Extremely close general election. And I always like to, 
that's actually, it's funny that you mentioned that. That's what got me so interested in polling huh. is that election. Uh, they were going through some briefings and I watched the way toward the end, Nick Theodore was kind of surging and he was coming up and Beasley was dropping. I was watching them giving us the polling reports. And then right at the very end, and this is what can happen in any political race, you might remember the Susan Smith thing happened on that Friday. Yeah. And the polling stopped and Beasley dropped his drops and Theodore's increases just froze for three days. Interesting. And that's pretty much where the race finished. It was right where it was Friday with Susan Smith. Yeah, people were more interested in the Susan Smith. Absolutely. And that's a remind remind our listeners. And that was, of course, the Susan Smith whose children uh, were drowned and she had claimed an African-American man did it. It turned out she had, unfortunately and sadly, um, killed her own children. In South Carolina, being such a small world, the prosecutor at the time was a guy by the name of Tommy Pope, good friend of ours, who is now the Speaker Pro Tem of the South Carolina House of Representatives. That's right. And And, and and at first, I mean, exactly when she had made that claim, it was like an all points both, and everybody was out looking for the people who had done this, her children. Right. So it really did kind of captivate because it, it didn't start with her pleading guilty or admitting it. I, I want to say she took a couple of days to absolutely it did. Yeah, people were so out. So it took everybody's attention, but that gives you the sense how something outside of politics can completely derail even the best laid plans. Uh, I would tell you without some, you know, this is my opinion, but without Susan Smith. And the whole incident, I think there's a good chance Nick Theodore wins that race. Wow. Well, that was the way the polling was headed. We learned oftentimes that the results are beyond your control. You do the best you can one way or the other, and then hope time is on your side. And we're so proud of Governor Beasley uh, and what he's doing right now with the uh, absolutely to help feed people across the world. A quick story on that I had texted him recently. We, we stay in touch with each other. And because uh, we've been trying to get him on the show, and he said, "Joel, let me get back to you. I'm in Ukraine right now." Oh wow! I well, mean, he's, he's doing great. No, and he work. helped me with Lebanon a year and a half back during that crisis. Yeah, to get some, uh, or I helped him, or he did a lot more than he, I did. Right. That way. He, he's, you know, he he has just been an asset in the entire state. Uh, yeah. and it, and, and I mean, what he did, what he did, I mean, did as governor. There's a lot of major things that happened, even that first term that uh, kind of defined how things would unfold yeah. later. Yeah. And 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 I'm, I mean, I, I don't think until recently we had a governor that worked as hand-in-hand with the legislature as he did. No. And, you know, what he's, what he's doing now is just, it, I, it's really good from my perspective. It's good for these people around the world to see an American working that hard to help them. I think that's, that's good. That's oh, good for America. You, cares. You, you talked about how sometimes underestimated David Beasley and his governor's Ship was um, his uh, successor, um, Jim Hodges, uh, and he are really great friends now. You know, I mean, obviously they had a, a tough campaign, but I love being around both of them at the same time. And I think both of them, uh, if you look back on what they accomplished in those single terms, I would stake uh, maybe against a lot of what we've seen over the last 20 years after them. Robert, talk a little bit. You, you, you opened the door to it, but um, you watched polling during that race. It grabbed your interest. Tell us how your career progressed from there. But yeah, I mean, I, I went on and continued to, we expanded our, we built a political firms over the years. So we kept growing those and, and expanded to so many different states. We, uh, I think by the, the last year we were doing a lot of consulting. We were in about 22 different states, uh, but notably always South Carolina, one of the key states. And then, you know, random states like Kansas and Michigan and Utah ended up moving up very big into states we were doing a lot of work in. So 
But it was in 2008 um, when I just realized I was really frustrated with the polling I was seeing and just the, the fact that it was never consistent and the people weren't doing it very well. And you mentioned Gazet. So back in 2002, um, when we were both working with uh, Warren Gazet, I think to the I think it was Warren. I, you know, yeah, Warren. No, you're right. It was. Let me think about it. It was well. He ran because I ran in four. It was 2000 when he had that primary against Rusty DePass. Yeah, it was 2000. That's right. Yeah. And I, I got to spend a lot of time in that race with Rod Shield. Sure. And I learned a lot about polling. I give him credit for so many things that I learned. I mean, we miss Rod Shealy. Let, let's pause one second. Yeah. We always try when we when we bring a name on. Rod Shealy, for those who don't know, was the son of the late Senator Ryan Shealy. Rod was one of the most prominent political consultants in South Carolina. His sister, by the way, Lori Shealy Unum, um, started the great movement that provided for autism legislation to be yep. passed around the country. Vincent and, and I his, work with and her. his son Ross worked on my first gubernatorial campaign. And yeah. and Robert just, but he was a kind of a trailblazer. Of, Absolutely, Rod was out of body. Yeah, yeah, and he, he lost was a contemporary Atwater. Yeah, he was relatively as a young man, relatively as a young man due to cancer, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's, 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 he had actually the same kind of cancer Atwater did because of, I mean, I would say that he, he kind of grew up in that era where they were using those very, very powerful phones. Uh, and those two in particular were constantly on that big phone. Yeah. Uh, they, they worked very much mobily. And Rod was just, he, he, he completely thought outside of the box. I'm not even sure if he knew the box existed, <laughs> um, but he had his way of doing everything. And, and so I learned a lot, just kind of being around him. And I, I would love to tell you that it was all a great relationship, but it, it wasn't always. <laughs> um, you know, I was a young guy, I felt a little threatened by a guy older, uh, yeah. like Rod coming in. And like they thought, you know, I needed adult supervision or something. So there was some <laughs> resentment there. But at the same time, I, I learned, you know, and that's the thing is, even when you're in an environment you don't want to be and you, you kind of enter into it a little, post, you know, with hostility, you can learn from people. And so sometimes you have to just tone that down and just realize that a lot, everybody has something to teach you. So we interrupted you, but you were talking about the Gazay race in 2000 and how that helped lead to the development of your career. Right. And so I learned a lot about polling from Rod, like little tricks, the trade, just kind of the ways he did it. Okay. And so in 2008, when I decided to try this first time, uh, we literally uh, built, the, it's funny that you have all this fancy software now, but we built an Excel spreadsheet that we used until 2017 <laughs> um, that basically I, I built out the whole thing that created, you know, weights and everything else. But so 2008 was the first year we started do, doing it in just for our own purposes, not anybody else. And in other words, 10, internal polling for your campaigns that you were helping. For my candidates, with. yes. Yeah. Who were you working with at the time? Any names, either South Carolina? You know, or- I tell you one that was really prominent, I remember doing a lot of polls for, was Mike Rhodes. Oh, senator, former senator from uh, Dorchester. Dorchester. Yeah. Dorchester. And uh, that, that was one. And then, oh, there were so many... Uh, I remember, God, there's so many years to remember who was running. Basically, South Carolina races at that time? Uh, South Carolina and Michigan. Okay. All right. So, Michigan. I want, want, and Joel Joel has a question, but I do want us to talk a little bit about, you know, we talk about polling generically, but I don't think people really understand, you know, you were just talking about doing spreadsheets. I think we need to explain, you need to explain to our listeners, really, 
what you mean by polling, how it works. That's how do you just, weight it? Yeah, yeah, give it. Walk us. Take us deep into the weeds for a few minutes. Okay. Well, what what the, the purpose of the poll is is not so much a predictor, but a snapshot of where a race is at any given moment. Uh, a poll says, "All right, at this moment in time, here's how it looks." And so you do that by gathering uh, responses to some sort of set of questions. And, you know, to make it uniform, they need to be the same questions. And there's so many different ways of doing that and different thoughts. But what are some of those, Robert? Tell us. Well, some of the there's a lot of, first of all, let's say, let's talk about collection methods. Okay. So one of the, um, you know, staple of collection methods has been the, the phone call. You know, a live person calling another live person asking a questionnaire. Uh, so then with new technology uh, came automated polls and people could answer polling questions, um, pressing buttons. And now as we moved into the Internet age and, and texting, you could you have text polls, you have email. Uh, they can answer the questions via email and um, and then you could answer questions online. So, you know, we started with just pretty much the live phone call. And a matter of fact, and this is a very interesting part of our story, uh, back in 2010, I thought, why is it that South Carolina, we don't have automated polls in South Carolina? And I found out it was because it was the automatic dialing statute prohibited a person from talking to a machine. Huh? So that seemed not fair. That South Carolina <laughs> can't do this. So through a legislator, I saw an official opinion from the attorney general uh, whether those kind of polls could be legal in South Carolina, be exception to the automated dialing device statute. And the opinion came from uh, governor, now governor, then attorney general, Henry Master, that yes, they would they would be legal. Ham you, Robert Cahaley. Uh, that's, right. <laughs> that's why we're getting well, all these phone calls. Oh, that people. was just the beginning of it. So... Um, and, and again, this is a side. I'm gonna get back to your question, but this is something most that your your, your uh, listeners will probably remember some of this. Well, I decided to then use those type of polls for some legislative races in South Carolina in the fall of 2010. Well, there were certainly some Democratic incumbents who yeah. were not very happy about me doing that, and one of them had a very special connection to the director of SLED, and I'll leave it at that, and made a complaint about this. And uh, SLED did not actually see uh, the statute and explained that they don't have to go by what the attorney general said. <laughs> I, I sort of remember, I remember this. this now. And he decided to yeah. arrest me for these calls. I do remember this. That's awful. Yeah. And I went through that for about um, two years. SLED, uh, when, the, when the SLED chief was replaced quickly after uh, Governor Haley, uh, he recognized how ridiculous the whole thing was. He kicked it over to Attorney General, who had a conflict, and so he kicked it to none other than David Pascoe's office. Okay. So two years later, Pascoe announced he would not be pursuing any charges, wow. and dropped it. And hinted the solicitor from down in Orangeburg. Yes, yes. He's still, I think he's still. Yeah, David's still solicitor. Yeah. And, and he hinted, hinted, Robert, hold on, I'm looking right now at the order, because it went all the way up to the Court of Appeals, right? Oh, yeah, that, I'm, I'm getting to that. Okay, okay, so, all right. So, anyway, Pasco um, hinted, we, we don't think he broke the law, and if even if he did, the law might not be constitutional. 
Um, well, I took the hint. Pasco's a smart guy like that. Yeah. And I and I was told, hey, you know what? Just because these guys drop me charges doesn't mean somebody else can't pick them up later. That's not, you know, that's not a guarantee. So then I took the law to court and we took it to federal court and Judge Childs, uh, who I thought would have been a great pick for the Supreme Court. Yes, but is now going to serve us well in the D.C. court. Absolutely, because she is a first-class judge and she is not as bipartisan, I think, as you can get. And I really have great respect for her. She ruled that it was, that the law was unconstitutional. They even appealed this thing, wow. and it went all the way to the, to the appellate court in Virginia, and uh, we won there too. And wow. so I got I got something funny real quick, here, Robert, because we want to kind of continue to move um, through a couple of key races. But am I right? Because you know Wikipedia is not always right. <laughs> but it says that the automatic opinion polling system that you were using. <laughs> was asking whether U.S. Speaker Nancy Pelosi should be invited to campaign with six Democratic from the South Carolina <laughs> legislature. Well, she, she was actually coming into the state. And so <laughs> the purpose of what we we're trying to do is we, we were trying to measure in uh, voters that had never voted Republican or Democrat primary, kind of the middle-of-the-road voters, if associating the name Nancy Pelosi with the Democratic incumbent would make them less likely to win or not. And so that's exactly what we did. And we got a sample of around 500 uh, in each district. And we determined which ones that it would and which ones it would not. And we actually then sent okay. mail pieces associated with, with Pelosi afterward. So I'm glad you brought that up, though, because that actually we were talking about the purpose and use of polling. And you talked about it gives you a snapshot in time of a race, but it also does other things. Right. It tells you potentially what is what messages will work and what won't. Talk a little bit about yeah. By the way, did you go six and zero in those races? Um, I think we did lose. I think the one we lost, the one who complained, actually, was that Ben said Shaheen. No, <laughs> uh, no I can tell uh, you. No, we didn't work here. We didn't yeah. work against Shaheen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Robert. <laughs> um, it looks like there was somebody by the name of who was Paul Larosa. Was that a candidate? Uh, he was. He was the very overzealous sled agent <laughs> who was trying to make his bones on yes. uh, make getting this thing and, and that's why he was named in the suit. I got it. All right, Robert, back back to the polling. So anyway, I was telling you all this to say that here's a polling method that once we won in court, we actually had that law, the automatic dialing statute as it relates to politics, stricken from the South Carolina law book. So it was something that we, we brought into that. So that was just, that's one other way of collecting. So you have all these different collection methods. And a, I'm a big believer that you need a big sample size. So a lot of people get a smaller group. They try to, so when you, you put your questions out there, however, whatever methods or mix of methods you use, you, you gather answers. And then when you take those answers, you make determinations about where a race is, what issues are and are not popular, what how people would rank issues. Like when you ask me, what's your most important issue? What's your second most important issue? So you can do a lot of things to kind of figure out where an electorate is. And again, you could test a message. You know, do you, do you, are you more or less likely to vote for a candidate? You know, who who believes this about abortion or believes this about guns? So you test messages. You can get a snapshot of where races are, and you can get an idea of how important 
and likely they're voting is by asking about intensity. So, but all of that is you gather these these samples, and then you have to then go back and say, all right, is the sample that I got representative of a group of people? And so there are things you wait by. And that's now everybody has different the, stuff. Let me interrupt you. That's where a lot of disparities in the ways different people run polls works, right? Like different pollsters might weight different things differently? Well, it, you know, the, the difference is actually more on collection methods okay. and sample size. And this is one of our big, and number of questions. So one of our big beef with a lot of the more traditional polling is we think they ask too many questions, the polls take too long, and they lose average people. They're, okay. they, they, yeah. All right, Robert, I want to take you to 2016 because I think this is where you went from being like one of many, um, and you pretty much work for Republicans only. Is that a fair statement? Well, you know, it's we don't, if you look at 2020 and 2022, we don't really work for candidates. I mean, right. this, yeah. these, we, we do do polls for candidates, but the public polls we put out there are not for any candidate or anybody. There. Do you work for the party? Who who pay, Who is your client? No, no, we do not work for the party. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> if we had a much worse record, we'd work for the party. Um, <laughs> yeah, the Republican Party is not famous for paying. Yeah, no, is how the business works, what yeah. you do, what your role is. All right, like, so our, our model is a little different than some, but let, let's get... So in 2016, we just believed we had built a better mousetrap. And we needed a chance to show it. And so though I had a chance after the convention to work with the Trump campaign, I left. I had helped them with delegate retention uh, in, the, in the summer, just making sure that delegates went to the convention, voted the right way, and did everything they were supposed to. And then I left because I said, hey, I got to be separate from the campaign. So we actually spent our own money putting out public polls in all the, the battleground states, and they were very different from what everybody else was saying. Right, and so, in after twenty twenty, we we had actually predicted the Trump would win. He would get three hundred and six electoral votes, which is exactly what he got. Wow. You mean we didn't get every state? You mean twenty sixteen? Excuse me. You mean twenty? Yes, it's twenty sixteen. Right, right. And this was because, and so we had predicted. Uh, we only had three states wrong, but they equaled the same amount of electoral votes and subtracted right. minus. Yeah. But. Um, you know, we got Pennsylvania and you know Michigan, all these places right that nobody else is getting right. And so we again went from polling was one of the small things to do, probably five ten percent of our entire business to okay. being you were still the entire business political consulting side of the business, campaign work, and a little bit of polling back then. Right. Okay. Yes. And so this was like a funny changed. story about funny story about 2016. So Kate and Dawson and I. King Dawson, former chairman of the state Republican Party, um, grew up in Columbia. We were on TV that night for one of the local TV stations talking about the elections. And, and as Robert pointed out, Vincent, the most almost all polling had Hillary Clinton winning that election. And I remember Caton telling me afterwards, do you know Robert Haley? He said, Hell, I've known Robert forever. And he goes, Robert is probably the only pollster that called it. So here's my question. I was told or read that, that that you called this right because of the way you were asking questions. You were getting information that the other pollsters weren't getting. Can you talk about that without giving us I can. sauce? 
And that and the way I did that goes back to South Carolina so deep you can't believe it. <laughs> so it's called the neighbor question. And what you do is you, and and it's a projection device because what you're dealing with is called the social desirability bias. And that's the tendency of someone answering a question, especially when speaking to a live caller, to cater their response in a way that doesn't reflect what they actually believe, but what they think will make the people asking the question think most of them. And so the way, there are many ways around that, but one of the ways around that is the neighbor question. So you say, all right, I understand you're for Hillary. Uh, How do you think most of your neighbors are voting? And that lets them tell you what they really think. Uh Uh Even if they don't know that they're really telling you what they really think. Oh, they have no idea. That's why you're asking that. But if, and we were able to see that in every single state, when you ask the neighbor question, the front went up and Hillary went down. It was no exception. And how much it went up or down depended upon how much weight we would give that answer in the final calculation. And how did you decide? How do you decide that? How do you decide? I'm back to this waiting thing. How do you decide? Well, and and that's how, okay, so there's two parts. So one, we actually were able to build a model uh, when we did the Georgia and South Carolina Republican primary that helped us figure uh, out what that number was. Okay. Because okay. those two primaries, we saw the same thing. Now, of course, in the general election, it's even more. Yeah. But it helped us kind of understand it because we asked the questions different ways. And we we did some measurements where we used uh, the neighbor question, some we didn't. Now, and then so, you just saw how close you got it to the actual election in the in the primary. Right. And so we were able to see how, how that weighted. Now, going back to South Carolina, that neighbor question was something Rod Sheely taught me. Wow. wow. Cool. And that goes back to Rod Sheely doing polls back in the 90s on the Confederate flag. Wow. Oh, yeah. Back when people were less likely to admit they were against it uh-huh. and to figure out where they really were. <laughs> I swear. This is a, that is so great. That is crazy. But they were, so that, that's amazing when you go back and look at that. They didn't want people to think they were against it, so they used the neighbor question to see what they really were. Right. Because yeah. so, yeah, because there was, you know, it's whenever there's that, you know, you, they feel like there's going to be, you know, some kind of, when your views are outside of what you think most people think. Well, it's fascinating to me because, you know, I'm old school, Robert, because I'm one of those that like, whoever has the most bumper stickers, whoever has the most yard signs, whoever usually is going to win an election. And I go back to Trump 2016, and I'm telling you, you couldn't find a yard sign you know, you can somebody, tell that Joel and I live in very different places, yeah, Robert, because right. there were plenty of Trump yard signs. Yeah. But in, in, my in suburban, but, but let me finish. In suburban, do, 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 do you just live at Whole Foods? I mean, I don't. What, what, what are you <laughs> talking about? You, I got to deal with this shit all the time. <laughs> you have to live in Shandon. Oh, do you live in Shandon? I mean, no, what is no. this? remember, I'm the one that says the only tea, <laughs> the only tea party that takes place at my district is at Starbucks. Okay, <laughs> but but what my point in suburban Richmond? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I mean, we know, but suburban you could. But yet he won a lot of those precincts. Yeah. And, and oh, but you're not even talking about suburban. You're talking about forest acres. You yeah, got the and, and, crown and all that stuff. But he won those precincts. All right, listen, real quick, we got to take Robert. I'm sure as a small business guy, you can appreciate this, but we got to pay some bills. So we're going to take a break and then we're going to jump ahead and talk about the midterms, Robert, because we want to kind of get your take on that. Robert, in the back room, we'll be right back. Joel, tell us about our longtime sponsor, Lexington Medical Center. Lexington Medical Center has provided the highest quality care to our friends, families, and neighbors throughout the Midlands 
for more than 50 years as the best hospital in the Columbia metro region, Vincent, and the second best hospital in South Carolina, according to U.S. News & World Report, Lexington Medical Center, you'll find the most advanced medicine, state-of-the-art technology, and compassionate care right when you need it. All right. Thank you, Lexington Medical Center. Joel, do you remember when I was the chair of the Senate Arts Caucus? I, I certainly remember that. Why do you ask, Vincent? Well, one of our sponsors today is the South Carolina Arts Alliance. They were one of our biggest supporters to promote the arts in South Carolina. Joel, they're a 40-year-old nonprofit organization, the only statewide art service organization in South Carolina that focuses on advocacy, leadership, and development. They help small arts organizations around South Carolina with funding, with advocacy, and with putting on the arts. And Joel, you know what? They are now a proud sponsor of Bourbon in the Back Room. We'll be right back. Art matters. All right, Joel, we're back talking to Robert Cahaley, now famous pollster nationally, but from South Carolina and still has his roots here. We've talked about uh, where he really proved to the world that he knew what he was doing in 2016. He predicted uh, the Donald Trump uh, race almost to the T. Um, and then, Robert, move us into your the development of your business and into 2018, what you saw there. I know in 2020 you had some real success, and then we'll talk about the midterm. So let's let's pick it up and go. Yeah, so basically we just, I mean, the, the polling side just kind of took over the whole business. And there was, you know, there are a lot of ways to do this. And you can work for candidates, you can work for parties, you can work for groups. So we in 2018, we had, um, we were still, we realized we brought in so much private sector business by doing and getting the attention for the polls. We continued right. to, to fund public polling ourselves. Uh, and uh, 2018, we were able to get a lot of the uh, key races uh, right when others got it wrong. And most importantly was Florida, where we actually we were the only firm in the country to predict DeSantis would win. And DeSantis and they actually, won a very narrow victory in Florida back in 2018, right? But he won a wider victory than did the Senate race, uh, which was actually tighter than that one was. Right, because, well, let's take our listeners back. DeSantis beat the former mayor of Jacksonville. What was his name? Um, Gillum, you know, Andrew Gillum, and then the Senate race was that the former astronaut? It was a yeah, he was now director of NASA. Yeah, yeah. What, what was his name? Bill, Bill Nelson. Bill Nelson. Bill Nelson, right? So, right. and with Gillum and DeSantis, there was a hidden vote, uh, a shy voter of about four percent, but that did not exist in the Senate race. Uh-huh. So, we were able to detect that and to the only ones to notice that, okay. Um, but then then thereafter, we had, we we also realized that a lot of businesses and high net worth individuals were always contacting us about what are the real numbers because they were tired of getting the nonsense from the candidates or the party who would tell them somebody's going to win their money in races smartly or maybe they right want to- and they just wanted they just wanted advice okay and. And a lot of them would say, hey, can you tell, you know, we'd have guys say, can you pull this thing and let me know? I'm trying to decide whether I should put money in the super bank for this guy yeah. or I should try. And so we realized this, this, is the, this is the way we want to go instead of working for candidates. Right. So we, we built a membership where you can, where organizations, individuals can join our polling group and become a member, and that, independent of what level of member, that gives them what level of information they get. 
Right. So if we put a public poll out they, and we just put the basic numbers, a member can have all the cross tabs. They can have, uh, they can actually have questions put on a state poll just for their own purposes. Right. Right. So that was, so that was 20. And so then we did that in 2020 and in 2020, again, we had a huge kind of hidden vote. Uh, and so everybody was predicting this Biden was going to win with this huge landslide and win these states by 10, 12 points. And it just didn't happen. It was a lot tighter than anybody thought it would be. There was the famous Washington Post ABC poll that said Biden was going to win Wisconsin by, I think it was like 14 points. <laughs> of course, we said Biden win Wisconsin by half a point. That's exactly what happened. And after 2020, we were... Uh, we, sh- uh, we were tied for first in the uh, Real Clear Politics rankings, and uh, 538 right. gave us an A. Great. Minus, so. Talk to us about what was different about 2022 politically, but also poll-related. Yeah, 2022 was very, uh, very different. And this is, start- is starting kind of be emerging a major difference between the Republicans and the Democrats. Republicans are still stuck in an old model. They are stuck in a model of election day and thinking that TV ads win elections. And the Democrats have, um, for the last few cycles, really invested in m- building massive grassroots organizations and doing work on the ground. Yeah, Ben, ben so, step back from voting in Georgia. In <laughs> <laughs> Robert, I don't speak like a Georgian. But Robert, when we were when we were talking um, before the show, um, you mentioned that you felt like uh, that this actually was a Republican wave year, but Democrats strategically deployed their assets in specific races to offset that. Talk a little bit about what you meant by that. Yes. So I would tell you it. It, it would look at look at it this way. Great example. The New York Yankees won 111 games and lost the first round of the playoffs because it's not about it's not about being hot. It's about being hot at the right time in the right place. Yeah. And so, so in the places where the Democrats did not do any type of focus, the natural the the natural occurrence red wave happened. You look at Florida. You look at South Carolina. I mean, I think South Carolina was six House seats split. I mean, that's that's a wave election. New York, four seats in Congress, and Zeldin comes closer than anybody's come in twenty years. Um, there were a lot. You know, Ohio, North Carolina. There were so many states where there was this wave, and then all of a sudden, this wave hit a wall in certain states. And those states were ones where the Democrats deployed their organization. And it is really, really good. And the Republicans have not adjusted to this. The Republicans are not basing their efforts on a, you know, some states, five week, six week, seven week, eight week political calendar of early voting. And there's just, I mean, they're still running things like this, you know, 2004. And that's not the way to win elections. So in those states, what would naturally have occurred did not, because frankly, the Democrats interrupted it and did a get out the vote that is immeasurably better than what the Republicans are doing. And is that where, Robert, it was very challenging for you and other pollsters to, to hit it again, because you couldn't really measure what was happening under the radar, perhaps? Absolutely. Because, I mean, 
and, and I'll say this carefully because I'm not trying to be critical. Um, there, whether you think ballast harvesting is right or wrong, it happens. Somebody who is at home, maybe they're shut in for whatever reason, left on their own devices, would probably not vote and probably not going to take a poll. But a good organization can turn that person who might not have ever made it to the polls and do a vote. Right. Now, that is a very hard person to measure because, again, they weren't even thinking about the election. You use, somebody, the, term, you use the term balance harvesting. What does that mean? Okay, what that means is when somebody other than a voter gets involved in making sure the voter votes let's and the ballot's cast. So let's say your, so, mother, your mother's handicapped and she's in a in a nursing home. She's normally not going to vote on her own. Let's say the Democratic or Republican Party call you up and say, Joel, I want to make sure your mom votes and you help make sure that she is valid. Okay, right. that's but, but it's, it's, gener it's generally like, why are things like somebody hires somebody like Joe? Okay, we hired Joe, and Joe's given a list of people who need to, let's say, a state you have to apply for FC ballot. They'll go and Joe, your job is to uh, get on the ground, go visit these people, make sure they get their application in, walk them through the process, make sure they get their ballot. When you go to their house, make sure that ballot is filled out, filled out correctly, and go vote it and go. Go mail it back or bring it back. It's very labor intensive work to make sure it is extremely labor intensive and it is not something the Republican Party does the first darn thing about how to do. <laughs> In because the close race, Robert, it could be the difference maker. It not only could it be, it is. And so what you look at, you start looking at races that would again, if things had been left on their own devices, so many of these races would have gone with the red wave the where the rest of the country did. But again, in some states, you know, I would tell you, like uh, Nevada, I mean, some of the stuff they, they did in Nevada was extremely clever. I mean, they got a list of people who had not turned in their ballots. They sent people to their doors for the last few days. I mean, this is the kind of operation the Republican Party doesn't know how to do in order to have the people to do it because it is focused on spending money and paying consultants and not winning elections. All right. So, so Robert, uh, two questions. Number one. So your numbers were a little bit off in 2022. You've talked a bit about why that was so, I believe. If there's any other reasons or other strange well, tell us. And uh, talk about what you see coming in the future. Oh, yeah. Well, and you, know, you did have a, a couple of things like um, states like Michigan put something about abortion on their actual uh, uh, statewide referendum, which can affect uh, a turnout in a way that people you can't, they don't usually vote. So, yeah, there were, there were lots of challenges then, but what I think looking forward is, I mean, it could be, it could go either way. What I see in the Republican Party right now is a bunch of nonsense and talk about how they're going to change. I right. see nothing to believe they are going to change. They haven't changed leadership in the Senate, which has completely failed. $250 million to win one Senate seat. The only race they made a difference is Ron Johnson. That the Republicans would want Ohio and North Carolina without any of it. So think about that. That's a quarter of a billion dollars to win one Senate seat. That is all they accomplished because they don't understand. So I don't think the Republicans are going to change. And if they don't change, I'm really not sure they'll have any. They'll have a chance of winning the president's race in, in 2024. Who is the Republican nominee for president in 2024, Robert? Oh, wait, sure. 
Yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just grab that answer. Right, let me ask it a different way. Um, obviously, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about this on the race, and you're from South Carolina, but but is it pretty much Donald Trump versus everyone else? Put Trump aside for a second. You've got Governor DeSantis. You got former Governor Haley. I think Haley gets out early, gets in early next year. I think it's to her advantage to do that. You got Tim Scott making a lot of noise. You got Larry Hogan, Pompeo. Yeah, Pompeo. I mean, Mike, <laughs> I don't know where his base is. Who do you think is is sort of emerges as in the anti-Trump group to be the the? the, the well, the here's the thing: I don't think an anti-Trump person is going to win the nomination. Agreed. Okay. I don't think you can alienate the Trump wing of the party. So the question is, and what really comes down, there's only one person who can win the nomination besides Trump at this point, and it's DeSantis. Sure. Now, not yeah, well, he's not an anti-Trump at all. I mean, he is. He. Well, knows. that's what I'm saying. So, yeah, so him, he, he would not represent an anti-Trump wing of the party. Now, yeah. certainly, the ones you mentioned before, a lot of them would be considered anti-Trump wing or Republican party. So, I think I'm not sure that DeSantis will get in because I think he knows what we all know, and that is if DeSantis runs against Trump and divides the party, the odds of the Republican Party winning the presidential election get even worse. Now, does is some kind of a deal struck? Anything is possible in politics, especially with the deal maker, which Trump is. <laughs> I mean, he wrote the book, The Art of the Deal, right? What are you going to do? All right, Robert, we're going to need to wrap it up. Um, but I want you to tell our listeners a bit, a little bit about the name of your company and, and why you call it. That. All right, so... We we picked the uh, name Trafalgar because I'm a huge fan of a guy named uh, Horatio Nelson, who was an uh, admiral in the British Navy. And uh, I actually have a dog named Ratio. Uh, right. Horatio is his full name. Yeah. And English Bulldog, I might add. <laughs> and all in. And, um, right. So... Uh, the, the most famous battle was the Battle of Trafalgar, where Nelson was outnumbered and outgunned, and yet he, he won. And so if the idea is that a superior strategy can beat, you know, more numbers, more, you know, more money. And so I'm a big believer that strategy wins, which is why I am so definitely disappointed in the Republican Party these days. Because um, I don't believe they understand strategy anymore. They understand how to make a profit, but not strategy. But it is literally, um, I'm just, that was so fascinating to me in history and, uh, and how that, that one battle changed Napoleon's entire plan about uh, going uh, westward and made him refocus on taking things via land and leaving England alone. So it was a very major point in history, and uh, I was always been fascinated by Nelson, so... That's the name comes from. So cool. All right. Well, Robert Haley, thank you for uh, being on the show today. And it is fascinating to watch you and your success coming from little old South Carolina across the nation. Well, I I, I will have to add one thing. Uh, go Cox and uh, Clemson will have to wait another year. Ah, yes, sir. I, I tell you, it, it's been a great couple of weeks around here oh, in Columbia. It's been Robert. Robert. Yeah, we, we have a satellite office in Clemson, too. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. right. hey, Robert, thanks for joining us. And we'll have to have you back on again because this has been a fascinating conversation. Wishing you um, the very best over the holidays and uh, keep doing great work, buddy. Thank you. Y'all, too. And I'm just proud to be part of the most influential 
podcast and politics. Yeah, bourbon, bourbon in the back room. We'll see you next week. Bourbon in the Back Room is produced by Austin Shaheen and Campbell Douglas. Marketing and research by Holly Van Horn.